0: Comic book companies were folding. Even seasoned publishers with a history of defining the medium were calling it quits. The Comic Magazine Association of America's new standards for comic book publication, called the Comics Code Authority, ruled over the industry. Membership was voluntary, as was adherence to the code. But after the public outrage towards comic books, many distributors would not ship and retailers would not sell books that did not contain the Comics Code stamp of approval. For those who wish to stay in business, they could either adapt or die. Comic books have given us some of the longest-lasting characters who inspire and sometimes motivate us to do better. Sadly, the industry behind them is not beholden to such ideals. From controversial stories and censorship to double-crossing companies leaving creators in obscurity, the history of sequential art is dark, deep, and complex. In comic books, there is a name for the tomes that we dig through, exploring the full history, good and bad, of the characters we love. These are Back Issues. The eras of comic book publication, the Golden, Silver, Bronze, and Modern Ages, seem to coincide with the many ups and downs of comic book censorship. With the creation of the Comics Code Authority, the Silver Age of Comics had begun. The title that is considered the first book of the Silver Age was a direct reaction of DC Comics to adapt to the new norms and expectations of the market. That book was a reinvention of a Golden Age character called The Flash, who had a brand new identity and a scientific background and explanation for his abilities. This new background and character was so influential that even today, this is the origin for the character in modern media, over 60 years later. DC Comics would continue this idea with a new Green Lantern, again, a new distinct character from their golden age character and with a new science fiction based background. This led to revised personalities and abilities for some of their more established characters who would survive the change in these eras, namely Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Other attempts at surviving the new code of censorship were not as well received. According to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund's website On the Era, "...comics were reduced to an infantile state in which stories were populated by dopey superheroes, tame romances, funny animals, and half-baked extensions of popular TV and movie brands." Companies like DC were rethinking their original characters and adapting their storytelling for the new rules, creating tamer adventures, yes, but not losing focus on the fantasy wish fulfillment that was in their original creation and intention. Other publishers were throwing fish at a wall, hoping to see one swim. This was friendly to the youngest readers of comics at the time, but anyone else, even slightly older children, struggled to give their attention to these newsstand stories for toddlers. By 1961, one creator had nothing to lose. He had grown bored and tired with the comic book industry and was considering a complete career change. This young man had been working at Atlas Comics, one of the publishers struggling to adapt to the new landscape of comic book storytelling. Concerned for his family's financial well-being, he readied himself to escape his job, but was tasked with one final project. You see, over at DC Comics, the Justice League of America had recently made their debut. They were a team of the greatest superheroes DC Comics had to offer, all rolled into a single book. This man's job was to create a team for Atlas that would rival their much more successful competitor's new title. And so, this nobody, this kid, who was ready to leave, named Stan Lee gathered his collaborator Jack Kirby and the two created the Fantastic Four under a brand new banner called Marvel Comics. The code for once created the opportunity for fresh new ideas in comic book storytelling. Interpersonal conflict, relationship drama, and flawed characters were not discouraged under the comics code. The predominant form of comics at the time was superheroes, and many of them just didn't have any long-lasting negative characteristics. They were essentially figureheads for idealism. Under Lee's leadership, though, he brought them down to their audience using the type of writing that he was most comfortable with. With nothing to lose, Lee took a chance that would influence the industry through today. By bringing his idea that superheroes could be flawed real people, teens and adults slowly began to return to the medium. Stanley was a pioneer and likely one of the only reasons that comics as a mainstream art form still exists today. While DC and Marvel adapted to the new norms of the Comics Code Authority, albeit in very different ways, other writers and artists found other avenues to create content and avoid the code altogether. Whenever faced with censorship, control, and outrage, you can always expect art to of any kind to be emboldened, and there was no better time for an underground comics movement than in the counterculture era of the 1960s. Underground comics were not new to the era, but they did see a boost in talent and publication during this time. Like a teenager, comics creators rebelled, and this time period saw a wealth of comics that tackled taboo content and anti-establishment sentiment. If the Comics Code Authority had a rule against it, you can bet that the underground comics movement was going to address it in their publications. By the late 1960s, many major cities saw large formations of groups who created these types of books. Titles such as The Adventures of Jesus, Zap, The Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers, and Women's wimmen apostrophe comics, Tits and Clits comics, and many more were established during this time. I will not argue that there was some concerning material here for me within some of these, especially misogynistic messages which the comics industry is regularly accused of creating. I can only say that these underground comics found a strong following in the wake of attempts to censor all types of the medium. With increased notoriety, however, came attention. While the Comics Code had made distribution difficult, in larger cities you could find shops that would carry these, what some would consider obscene books, but in response to this. And as they became more popular, many of these cities began to create anti-obscenity laws to combat the new wave of books. These laws were often left open to interpretation, with there being a history of arrests based solely on the opinion of the arresting officer's idea of what was inappropriate. These events are what began the destruction of this underground movement. Now in a later episode, I want to explore the underground movement further, but in short, arrests and new laws beat down underground comics, leading to a new wave of censorship in the media. It can be argued that the decline of the Comics Code Authority began with a single issue. In 1971, the government asked Marvel Comics to write an issue about drug abuse. When they published this book though, it did not carry the Comics Code stamp. The authority refused to accept it as appropriate despite the messaging and the requests coming from the offices of the Nixon administration. That issue, The Amazing Spider-Man Number 96, covered the events of Harry Osborn, best friend of Peter Parker, overdosing on acid and being taken to the hospital. Even without the Comics Code stamp, the book's sales were actually steady. An unexpected turn of events, but a testament to the popularity of Marvel Comics at the time. This was the first time since its inception in 1954 that mainstream publishers saw a crack in the code. During that same year of 1971, the code would be revised for the first time. This would again occur in 1989. Each time, the Comics Magazine Association of America would state their intent to adapt to the changing times with what they would allow, but still remain steadfast on the idea that wholesome, safe content for children could only be published with the codes sticker. In reality, these were attempts to appease groups who might be outraged while adapting their standards in order to exist. Around the same time that The Amazing Spider-Man Story had been published, other magazines and comics were being published without the backing of the Comics Code Authority. This was the age of Vampirella, Heavy Metal, and even Marvel using one of their imprints to publish new horror comics to sell at the newsstands. The final nail in the mainstream use of the stamp, was the use of the direct market to sell comics. So, in short, book publishers now had direct access to their customers from a variety of sources, such as specialty comic book shops. Unlike the newsstands and bookstores which returned comic books that they did not sell, under the direct market, these comic book shops would buy all of their issues in a non-refundable capacity. With this guaranteed amount of money going to the publishers regularly, comic book publishers were able to take more chances with the types of stories they created. Basically, they didn't have to worry about returns and could anticipate the number they would need to print by having the shops order them ahead of time. The direct market allowed for more chances to be taken, collectibles to be sold, and an increase in the quality of both of these things in the retail market. Before the total abandonment of the Comics Code, which had been around for decades, some publishers created imprints to distinguish between adult and children's stories. An example would be DC's Vertigo imprint, where John Constantine made his debut in the book Hellblazer. After some of these experiments, finding no change in their cells, the code began to slowly die off the next couple of decades. Some companies would just announce their discontinued involvement and others would just stop submitting their books to the Comics Code Authority without even a word. In the last 20 years before the dissolution of the Comics Magazine Publishers of America, the Comics Code Authority held very little authority other than their supposed moral authority. the Comics Code Authority morphed the landscape of comic books in unforeseen ways. Despite the outrage and the unfathomable reach that this group had, artists still found ways to subvert the rules and adapt their creations for new audiences. While the simplification of more mainstream superheroes had seemingly neutered storytelling, artists like Stan Lee and Jack Kirby found ways to increase the quality of their stories without stepping over the boundaries that were set by the Comics Code. By the 1980s, when the Code's authority was waning, many publishers took up arms and began taking greater chances to tell stories for all types of readers. Now here's where my personal ideas and opinions come in. I think what is important to remember is that the Comics Code Authority was a self-imposed set of rules to avoid government censorship. Often the voices of the morally outraged can cloud our judgment. But had it not been for the Comics Code, the American government may have taken greater steps to censor comic books for the public. It's a real threat that we are facing as several school districts and libraries have attempted to ban certain stories under the guise of what is appropriate again using the word appropriate without a clear definition. There will never be a full victory against censorship. We will constantly be up against groups using muddy reasoning to justify their beliefs. It is not our duty to control the homes of others, but to ensure that everyone has equal access to the information, wherever they may be. I will end with a quote of the times we live in today, as comics are being challenged again in our libraries. If you have a worldview that can be undone by a novel, let me suggest that the problem is not the novel. Season 1 of Back Issues was written, edited, researched, and birthed by me, Marcus Robertson. I really hope you enjoy this first season and if you do, please consider subscribing and going to my social media links below and saying hello. Furthermore, if you're willing to give, I do have a Patreon, but feel no pressure. I want to continue to explore all that comics have to offer, and I want to share that journey and I can do it with your help. Thank you so much for already giving me your valuable time. You're the best, and I cannot wait to share more with all of you.